to say that King David was fused with his harp, to say that in the night his harp and heart were one, to say that upon rising his first thought was not his crown but his harp with which he could sing of the glory of God, is to explain why David is worthy of his crown. Welcome to Bible 365, episode 224, David's Harp and David's Crown. I'm Mayor Soloveitchik. Many famous phrases from Shakespeare are misquoted. Thus, alas, poor Yorick, I knew him well, is actually, alas, poor Yorick, I knew him, Horatio. Usually the mistake does not change the original meaning, but with one example, the error is profound. We hear often, heavy is the head that wears the crown. That is not what Shakespeare wrote. And to quote it this way is to lose the entire significance of what the bard actually composed. It is the original line that allows us to truly understand Shakespeare's insight about kings and why the Bible celebrates one king even more for his harp than for his crown. Psalm 108 Paralleling Psalm 57 gives us several lines in which David speaks of rising early to offer praises to God on his harp. O God, my heart is fixed. I will sing and give praise even with my glory. Awake, psaltery and harp. I myself will awake early. I will praise thee, O Lord, among the people, and I will sing praises unto thee among the nations. For thy mercy is great above the heavens, and thy truth reacheth unto the clouds. Be thou exalted, O God, above the heavens, and thy glory above all the earth. Simply interpreted, David describes here waking when many are still asleep to sing psalms while playing the harp. The harp is today the symbol of Ir David, the city of David in Jerusalem, whose website gives us a description of what sort of harp David might have played. Quote, The instrument which the Bible calls a harp, such as the one mentioned in the verse, give thanks to God with harp, sing praises to him with a lyre of ten strings, is the harp in its ancient form, called a lyre or arched harp. The arched harp is one of the most ancient musical instruments known to us. It appears in reliefs from Egypt and Mesopotamia, dating as far back as the 3rd millennium BCE, about 2,000 years before David. Later innovations of the ancient lyre included the angular harp, in which the strings were diagonally stretched between the sound boxes and a standing column, as well as the frame harp, which is the harp we are familiar with today. However, these styles did not exist during David's period. As mentioned, the instrument upon which David played was apparently the arched harp, David's harp, end quote. Thus, the psalm apparently describes David rising early to play the arched harp. In Psalm 119, a precise time is given as part of that psalm's glorification of the Torah. David says, At midnight I will rise to give thanks unto thee because of thy righteous judgments. I am a companion of all them that fear thee and of them that keep thy precepts. Thus, midnight is the time. And while some rabbinic sources describe David playing the harp in the midst of the night, The Talmud takes note of an interesting phrase in our psalm that seems to speak to the harp itself, awake, psaltery, and harp. Based on these verses, a wonderful midrashic description is given in the Talmud of David having a harp that hung over his bed that would play by itself as a midnight wind went through the king's palace. That would wake David, who would then rise and devote himself to the Torah. For this midrashic reading, the harp itself plays for David, and the point, perhaps, is to conflate David and his harp. Rabbi Adin Steinsaltz once put it this way, quote, Why do our sages insist on conflating musician and musical instrument? The answer is that when a person attains the perfect level of prayer, he himself is an instrument playing music spontaneously. He has become the instrument of song, of prophecy, of prayer. The melody is his, and his entire being is none other than an instrument expressing that prayer. End quote. Thus, for this reading, 
David becomes spiritually identified with his harp. He and it are one. It is in this spirit that the city of David reflected on this famous feature of David's life. Quote, Why is the character of David playing the harp more significant than David's character as a warrior, king, conqueror, and even builder of Jerusalem? Perhaps the answer to this question is related to the burden we carry with us. David's kingdom fell at the hand of the Babylonians at the end of the First Temple era. The Davidic dynasty disappeared at the beginning of the Second Temple era. Jerusalem was destroyed twice. However, the book of Psalms, the book of David, the harp player, survived all of the tests of time. There is nothing that can touch the book of Psalms, whose chapters accompany us until this day during times of trouble and moments of gratitude, during each prayer in our hymns and songs. David's harp became a very significant visual image, identified with David's character and expressing the spiritual aspects of his personality as the author of the book of Psalms, the book that still accompanies us today, just as it did at the time it was written. For this reason, the arched harp, David's harp, was chosen as the symbol of the city of David. End quote. So, the article on the City of David website tells us, and this is eloquently written, but I would add that what the Talmud is teaching us is that the Psalms and Harp of David signify precisely why he is chosen as the king that will rule over and build up Jerusalem. Why, in fact, the two legacies are linked. Think of the Psalms again. They teach us that David's first instinct upon awakening is to sing to God and to engage his Torah. That is not necessarily what is on the minds of other kings as they lie in bed. Indeed, this is the significance of Shakespeare's oft-misquoted phrase from Henry IV, Part Two, which in the original is, uneasy lies the head that wears the crown. The sentence is so often misquoted as, heavy is the head that wears the crown, and the deeper meaning is thereby lost. Shakespeare's Henry IV is speaking here about a king who is lying down, who is going to bed for the night. And when the king is in bed, when he is lying down, is the one moment when he is not wearing the crown. What Henry means is that when his head lies down on the pillow, he is uneasy, because with the crown off his head, it is much easier to imagine it on the head of another. And of course, Henry IV and the entire series of Shakespeare's history plays embodies this fact. By deposing and replacing Richard in the play Richard II, Henry made replacing kings thinkable he made replacing himself thinkable. Therefore, in Henry IV, part one, he faces a rebellion from those who helped place him on the throne in the first place. In part two, he faces another rebellion. His son, Henry V, will have those who try to murder him on behalf of France. And his son, Henry VI, will lose the rebellion ultimately in the War of the Roses. Thus, to take the crown off one's head as one lies in bed is to ponder the crown's passability and therefore to lie uneasily. Uneasy lies the head that wears the crown. In Richard II, the kingship is called a hollow crown because the crown can be taken off one's head and given to another, and therefore, all too often, Shakespeare is telling us, the king, especially in bed, can become obsessed with the possibility of losing the crown. Shakespeare gives us, in Uneasy Lies the Head that Wears the Crown, a fascinating parallel to fears that haunt Ahasuerus in the Book of Esther. That night, the king could not sleep. And so, we are further told in the biblical book, he ordered to have brought to him the kingly records, reading of those that attempted to assassinate him and of those that saved him. And as the king lies in bed, his fears grow and grow, bringing to life other words of Shakespeare from Richard II. For within the hollow crown that rounds the mortal temples of a king keeps death his court, and there the antic sits, 
scoffing his state and grinning at his pomp, allowing him a breath, a little scene to monarchize, be feared and kill with looks, infusing him with self and vain conceit, as if this flesh which walls about our life were brass impregnable, and humor thus comes at the last and with a little pin, bores through his castle wall. And farewell, king. Uneasy lies the head that wears the crown is about obsession in the night with the perpetuation of one's power. The monarch's mindfulness of the fact that at the moment the crown is off his head, which is why the moment a king rises, he might look first and foremost to his crown. In contrast, to say that King David was fused with his harp, to say that in the night his harp and heart were one, to say that upon rising his first thought was not his crown, but his harp, with which he could sing of the glory of God, is to explain why David is worthy of his crown. In further Midrashic description, the Talmud tells us of David after being woken by his harp, engaging in spiritual devotion from midnight to morning, and then turning to statecraft, politics, and the economics of his kingdom. The point, perhaps, is that David saw service to God, not power as an end in itself. And that is precisely why he was so worthy of wielding power and of reigning over Jerusalem. In one of the concluding scenes of Henry IV, Part II, the future Henry V comes to his father's deathbed and, thinking his father deceased, takes the crown from the bed, walks out, and ponders its burdens, comparing it to wearing armor on a searing day. The king, however, is not dead, and as soon as he wakes, his immediate thought is to wonder what has happened to his crown. He thinks the worst of his son because, upon waking, all the monarch could imagine is someone stealing it. He therefore reproaches the future Henry V for taking a crown too soon that would soon be his, saying, Thou hast stolen that which after some few hours were thine without offense. The son, however, explains his mistake and, in a sign of his coming maturity, shows the true meaning of majesty by referencing God, saying to his father, There is your crown, and he that wears the crown immortally, long guarded as yours. For the Bible, the true test of a king is whether he recognizes the one true king whose royal status can never be passed to another. And if a mortal king seeks to be worthy of keeping his hollow crown on his head and in his dynasty, it is only if he recognizes the one true king that he will deserve to do so. It is to this one king who has reigned for all eternity that David would pray and play and sing. And that is why it is David that is forever identified as King of Jerusalem. The City of David website further describes the finding in the midst of rubble taken originally from the Temple Mount, a small stone figure of a harp. The harp turned out not to be very old, but nevertheless, as the website further informs us, it can perhaps still be said that its spiritual symbolism is sublime. Quote, In the end, the medallion was actually identified as the symbol of a military band in the British Army during World War I. It was a random identification, pretty unrelated to anything. But perhaps specifically here, the magic of David's harp is hidden. It is a symbol that has soared far beyond the boundaries of time and space, from King David's Jerusalem 3,000 years ago until the beginning of the 20th century to a musical military unit who chose David's harp as their symbol, only to be found by us during the Temple Mount Rubble Sifting Project in Jerusalem. David's harp crosses time and space, but finally comes home. End quote. It is in the Psalms that we discover a king whose very heart was a harp, one which plays for us to this very day. This is Mayor Soloveitchik. Looking forward to learning together tomorrow. Signing off.